Welcome to the State of the Markets podcast, episode 47, and our final episode of 2018. I'm Paul Rodriguez of thinktrading.com, joined by Tim Price of pricevaluepartners.com. And our very special guest and final guest of the year is James Ferguson of Macro Strategy Partners. Welcome, gentlemen. Hello. Morning. James, tell us a bit about yourself. Well, uh, I am... I've had a, a long and varied uh, career in the financial markets. I started straight out of university where I got a, an economics degree um, uh, at a Japanese stockbroker, Nomura, uh, who no one at the time had ever heard of, mainly because I wanted to go to Japan and that's where they took their graduates. And that led to uh, 20 years virtually trapped in a, uh, an almost permanent bear market. Oh, wow. But bear markets are brilliant for learning things yeah. because you've got loads of time to sit there not congratulating yourself on the back and not mistaking the market going up for your own personal brilliance, but instead to sit there thinking, why on earth is none of this working? So you've seen and the future. That is amazing. Well, actually, funny you should say that. I, I eventually broke out of the Japanese uh, um, broking business uh, and research business and uh, you get, decided you get, to get time off for good behavior, James. No, no, quite the opposite. Uh, I, I was uh, many, many, many people I'd started with had already left for, under various guises, fallen, jumped or pushed. But, uh, but I was still there. I just couldn't get out. So I thought I would, I would set up a hedge fund. Do you remember back in the day when setting up a hedge fund was all the rage? Oh yeah. Uh, anyway, so this, I, I was looking to set up a hedge fund because I, I uh, was quite lazy. So I computerized a way of uh, finding good value on stocks. Uh, but it absolutely required, um, uh, as an anchor, a risk-free rate. And therefore, it absolutely didn't work in Japan, because in Japan, after a banking crisis, the, uh, the distortions that happen to bond yields uh, are, uh, are extreme. And they go in the opposite direction to where bond yields normally go, and they give you a totally different message to what bond yields in a normal market environment tell you. So I was going to set up my hedge fund in anything except Japan before I realized, having seen the, the play before, if you like, that the West was heading into an exactly the same sort of banking crisis as Japan had had got itself mired in. And that's how I became a strategist, because everybody said, why aren't you setting up your hedge fund? I said, well, because there's going to be a banking crisis. And they went, what? Come and tell us about that. Fantastic. <laughs> so I did. Brilliant. And so, so that would have been sort of circa 2007, 2008, or was it just a bit before that? Actually, it was more like two thousand and six to two thousand and seven. It was it was very it was very prescient. Uh, I'd like to take a lot of credit for that, but at the time, um, all the ex Japan hands, the, the half dozen that were left <laughs> uh, in the in the world of finance, were all swapping stories about. Uh, I don't know if you've cast your mind back that far, but pre the crisis, uh, there were several sort of um, indications that the US housing market was going to blow. Yeah, They had ninja note loans, if you remember, which yeah. was no income, no job. Um, so how on earth are you going to pay the mortgage? You had piggyback loans where um, they would say, right, well, you do need a deposit to get a mortgage. And people say, well, I haven't got any money. I've got no job and no money and, they, and no capital. And they would say, okay, well, we'll lend you the money for your capital down payment. Um, and so, you know, you're looking at this and going, and then they're securitizing it all. And we're yeah. looking at this going, this is just the biggest short in the world. But we didn't know, because we were all old Japan equity people, we didn't know how you shorted it. We didn't mm. know where this stuff was ending up. Now right. I now know it was in all CDOs and CDSs, but we didn't know that at the time. So uh, we were we were one step away from being genius hedge fund managers uh, of the likes of, of John Paulson, but we didn't know what instruments were holding this stuff. So we didn't know what it was specifically you had to short. Uh, but it wasn't just me. As I say, almost everyone who was still in the market who'd done Japan could see this one coming. That's an interesting observation, James, because I remember 2008 
Um, and we, well, we, we slash I, you know, had kind of sort of broadly prepared for you know, a financial crisis. But the, the issue was, it, it, the, or the issue is rather, that you can get the fundamentals more or less correct. But that's not really any help if, if you've elected to use the wrong product or the wrong vehicle to express that. So in other words, in 08, the thing that I'd completely failed to foresee was that although it made sense it, to a greater or lesser extent to have some exposure to certain hedge fund or hedge fund strategies, if you held those in the form of liquid investment trusts, which, which I did at the time, it was no use at all because although the underlying funds may have actually been delivering fairly decent returns, because they offered a degree of liquidity that their traditional offshore closed type um, counterparts didn't, everyone treated them like cash machines, like ATM machines, and they got raided for money and ended up losing far more in capital value than they would have done if they'd, um, if they'd, if they'd had you know, less liquidity to offer. So well, if it, I remember rightly, the, um, in 2007, so when we had the sort of when we had the shot across the bows and everybody, I remember going to a conference in September 2007 at the uh, London Business School where they were discussing uh, in the past tense the crisis and I was jotting down furiously everything people were saying because I'm thinking, no, this is this is the beginning of something that will incorporate every single crisis we've ever seen. Um, but at that time, what was interesting was that, and I I think I'm right in saying that the fund was called Sequoia Capital, but I could be wrong. But I think it was called Sequoia Capital. It was a fund that basically was full of very smart guys. And they'd worked out exactly what was going on and exactly what to do. They'd worked out that um, all the um, highly rated um, sort of subprime mortgage funds shouldn't be highly rated at all. And they were going to crash. But because they were really smart, they wanted to hedge that. So they shorted all the subprime uh, securities. And they needed a hedge against that. So they hedged the a uh, really secure sort of um, better than mezzanine debt uh, side of it. So they were shorting the risky stuff and going long of the uh, really safe stuff. I don't know if you remember what they were doing in those days, but what they were doing was um, creating tranches. So basically, as defaults came through, they'd hit they'd hit the guys at, at, at number 10 first. And if you were holding number one paper, everything had to go before your number one paper got hit. So the number one paper... And that's not its real name. I'm just using this yeah. to sort of illustrate the idea. The number one paper was was super safe because you'd have to have the end of the world for that to go wrong. Um, so they they decided that they would be uh, long of that and they'd be pretty short every, of the super pretty, useless stuff. Pretty pretty soon everybody's holding number twos, aren't they? Well, no, no. So this this is the first, yeah. <laughs> um, but this was right at the very beginning of the crisis. And what they hadn't uh, factored in. Oh, so there were two lovely elements to this. The first one was that they delta hedged. Now, what that is, is, that's a sort of fancy way of saying that they realized that the really volatile stuff is more volatile. So although they had a, a short position in the rubbish, they had to be three times as long of the high quality stuff in order to match uh, the volatility. And what was the high quality stuff? Well, the high quality stuff was all the stuff that the banks had been generating while they were securitizing these mortgages. And they've been re relatively sensibly selling uh, the, the low quality stuff into the market. But the very high quality stuff, um, because it was such high quality, they didn't have to hold any capital against and they didn't have anyone particularly to place it with. So it had just been accumulating on their own books. They were, you know, a job to be done later. They were going so fast, generating so much of this stuff. They hadn't had time to kind of deal with that, but it didn't matter because it was costless to hold it. 
So when the, when the crunch, the, the very first early crunch in the summer of 07 came, the banks turned around and the first thing they said was, well, get rid of all that high quality stuff because we've got far too much of it. We've got no. billions and billions of dollars of it. So guess what? That stuff fell just as much in price as the rubbish did. But these guys who were super clever were Delta Hedge. So they had three times as much as a long position of the stuff that got sold down just as much as the bad stuff. Wow. And they went out That's, of business. And they'd absolutely understood everything. Nearly. It, sounds a li- it sounds a little bit like LTCM. Well, except LTCM had a more fundamentally stupid idea, which is that um, lots and lots of data over a very short period of time is worth as much as lots and lots of data spread out over time incorporating several cycles. So if you look at the data period under which LTCM had all their gazillions of bits of data, it incorporated one upswing. That's it. No downswings, no cycles, nothing. Yeah. I think so the value of that data, um, you know, was was worthless because it didn't incorporate, you know, the other side of the hill. They all they also thought that they had found a way to get rid of risk out of trading. And anybody tells you, anybody who knows anything about markets knows that that's completely impossible. So that they were kind of primed for a fall in the sense that they didn't know the weaknesses of their own system. Well, now here's a here's a that's a very very. Um, uh, perspicacious point, and it's very relevant to where we are right now, I think, because another kind of rule in inverted commas of trading is that if you're going to have a really bad hit, the thing which will hit you is the thing which you thought was low risk, not mm. the thing which you thought was high risk, because high risk stuff we're already, you know, insuring ourselves against and, and sort of, you know, um, keeping in a, in a sort of limited exposure and all the rest of it. So here we are with everyone having a big wobble. And I'm probably jumping the gun here by going from deep history into <laughs> into sort of you know present today's newspapers. Oh no, we want the segue. We want the segue. That's good. <laughs> we're all having a you know we're all having a big wobble. I believe 90% of asset classes this year are in the red, which is the first time that's happened apparently since 1920. Uh, if it's not, blame Deutsche Bank, not me. I didn't do the, the sums, but um, <laughs> but you know we've we've clearly got had a sort of uh, a liquidity uh, uh, withdrawal here which we knew was coming because we knew the ecb was cutting back on qe and we knew that the fed was going to do qt which is actively reversing qe and it sucked money at the moment seemingly out of just about everything so we could probably paraphrase that by saying to just about the same extent so everything at the moment has suffered because the money's coming out no one has yet decided where the proper pain and 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 risk exposures are but uh, as you uh, and I have both been sort of pushing towards, it's most likely that it'll come from the least likely place, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so to, put, to put a bit of flesh on the bone, what is the least likely place? Well, to put a bit of flesh on the bone, you know, if, if we're going into an environment which is sort of risky or, or more negative, then you'd expect people to, to take money out of us. In fact, it, so far they have out of riskier assets. But I would argue, and I'm sure um, we'll get into um, a lot of the meat of this, I would argue that the assets which are historically and traditionally the most risky are actually not the ones that are looking terribly badly valued, Um, say equities in general. Um, And the things which are historically low risk, bonds, 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 they are looking potentially uh, really, really dangerous. Now, we've We've pointed this idea out that you know one day when it breaks, um, bonds are going to be where the, the damage really hits. Do you mean government? Um, do you mean government bonds and it's sort of G seven government bonds? Or do you mean like cor- corporate bonds as well? Or 
Um, well, it depends a lot on what actually happens. If we have a downturn, the big risk is in corporate bonds because their spreads widen. And if we don't have a downturn and we actually create uh, inflation, then the risk is in government bonds. So, you know, that one's still all to play for. Mm. But we do know purely from the fact that they are. I mean, I'll give you an example. Back in 1980, UK 30-year gilts. So this is what's most comparable to the to the kind of uh, perpetual that is an equity. Eighteen percent. What is it? What's that? The yield on it? Uh, um, I've I've got it. I've got it on my chart, touching fifteen point three. Right. Um, okay. But that is that is the thirty-year gilt. You're probably thinking of the ten-year or something. That I, anything shorter would have been a higher. It was just yield. a guess. It was just a guess. Well, a very good guess. Um, but at that time, what do you think the earnings yield? Now, this is just the PE of the stock market inverted. So, uh, you know, if I've got it paying ten times PE, then I'm getting an earnings yield of ten percent. I.e., both of them are telling me that in ten years' time, the company should earn back the amount of money I put in it, and everything I get after the end of the ten years is kind of gravy, uh, in a very simplistic way. So, at the time that the um, that government bonds were yielding you fifteen percent, equities were only yielding you six right this is the yield this is not the dividend yield this is the earnings yield this is all their profits so why would you have any money in equities you just have them all in in, in gilts basically well the, yes the reason for it was that we had high inflation and a 30-year and uh, gilt coupon was never going to change whereas the dividend on a stock you'd hope would go up at approximately the rate of inflation and you'd have capital gain as well okay uh yes i mean but you know that's that's generally sort of what the market's thinking so but today we're in we're sort of in a very through the looking glass situation where the 30 year gilt yields you 2% and equities are yielding you 9 right so you've got oh, this see. exact opposite yeah. situation whereas whereas uh, and of course what was the greatest trade of a generation was back in 1980 selling every equity you'd ever seen and buying boring old government bonds and you just waited as the yield went down and down the yield premium to earnings yields in the equity market went down and down until eventually it inverted and went negative. And now we're in a world where no one seems to sort of question this, but where um, we're looking at, you know, the, in the days when the uh, the government bond uh, was uh, um, giving you these, these very high uh, yields, you know, even stock dividend yields were only about sort of 5 or 6%. Today, the dividend yield of the market is 4.5%. Which is over double what the yield is. Well, well over double. It's it's heading towards three times what the yield on the thirty-year gilt is. So, James, so, you're, you're, are you basically saying that that this could be a, an, an amazing buying opportunity for equities? Well, what I'm saying is that I'm looking at this market uh, sell-off, and two things jump out at me. The first thing that jumps out at me is that at the top of a of a bull market, the, the danger point is when lots of people start talking in ways to justify why the bull market, although we know it's it's off the chart in terms of valuations, is actually good value. And what I'm seeing now is lots and lots of commentary saying that this is just the beginning, this thing's going to get absolutely disastrous and it's kill, going to kill everybody. And I'm going, well, when I see a bear market, usually two things happen. One, everything in that bear market is extremely overvalued. And two, as the fundamentals roll through, say, the downturn or the crisis, it'll likely make those fundamentals worse. So Japan was a classic example. When we, when the Japan bull market peaked out in, in at the end of the 1980s, um, Japan was basically uh, on about sort of 50 times PE multiple. 
And, the, and it took two years of bear market for that PE multiple to halve to 25 times. But in that time period, earnings halved because it was, you know, a recession, which meant the PE, which had been 50, went back to 50, even though the stock market had halved. So the stock market after halving was just as much of a sell as it was before it halved. Right. And that is the makings of a disaster bear market. <laughs> so let's look at this market. Right now, we're already seeing, um, and this is across the world, you know, I mean, the PEs across the world are about 12 times, i.e., um, the earnings yields about 9%. And I'll come to the US in a second, but I think it's not that dissimilar in the US if you cut out tech and Amazon. Um, so what we've got here is, is we've got very high earnings yields um, across the world in stock markets. And in order for that to last, because we th these are, uh, you know, historically very rare things to see, we only really see them just uh, at the time of crashes. The crash pushes the PE, uh, obviously, right down uh, and the earnings yield right up. So let's have a look at the fundamentals. Fundamentally, the US doesn't look like it's going into recession. Uh, the UK might technically, but it's mainly to do with Brexit. There's, there's nothing fundamentally broken. Europe is a different case. I think Europe um, you know, was relying way more than they realized on QE. And the absence of QE will mean that the figures in Europe will continue to deteriorate until I think they probably sometime during 2019 reinstate QE. So they'll probably rescue the economy from the worst uh, case scenario in terms of that. So it's to me, it's quite unlikely that we're going to get a massive uh, deterioration in the fundamentals, um, in which case it's very hard to look at 9% earnings yields and go, that's unattractive, because unless you take away the earnings that are supporting that, uh, that, is, that is offering a lot of value. Uh, the dividend uh, yields, uh, you know, likewise are they're half what the earnings yields are. So the payout ratio is about half. I believe for the FTSE 100, it's 58%. But if you look at the, uh, the all share, it's about half, which is about the long term average. Um, so the only thing you really, really have to worry about is, is margins, whether profit margins are due to uh, utterly collapse. But that tends to be a longer run thing. So I'm looking at this and, and thinking across the world that uh, a lot of the bad news is in the price. The panics in the market, the non-financial press are talking a lot about disaster scenarios and using as their evidence that markets are going to get worse what markets have already done, which James, is illogical. Sorry, sorry to interrupt. James, you, you started by talking about Japan. Um, it, 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 in the bigger picture, given that Japan, as we know, has suffered a 25-year bear market, <laughs> Uh, what's your take on the situation on the ground now? Do you, I mean, I, I, I have a vested interest because we, we, we have a, you know, in, in relation to the fund that we manage, our single biggest country allocation is to Japan. But I'm not after confirmation bias. I'm simply saying, what, do you think that Japan has finally turned a corner now in, in, in economic terms? <clears throat> um, Japan has, for as you'll, you'll well be aware, has for at least a decade been good value, but that value has been a value trap. Mm. Um, so the thing about Japan is that um, on the numbers now, it's actually better value now for the first time in my 30-year career than the US. And that is the, for the first time ever. It, it yields more and it's got a lower P. So that's, uh, that, that tells you that, you know, it is time for Japan to be uh, brought into the fold. The thing which has always been the twofold problems for Japan have been, one, um, that um, corporate governance has always been so shaky you know the olympus uh, uh episode quite recently sort of showed that even bringing in foreign uh ceos didn't stop the the system being sort of rotten and it didn't 
mean that, this, uh, that the Japanese system was going to support corporate governance and the foreign CEO when it, when things came to light. They, they instead um, circled the wagons. And we might be seeing that again with Carlos Ghosn uh, and Nissan, uh, where they're obviously accusing him of, uh, of tax uh, uh, evasion. But uh, it's quite likely the timing stinks to me. Let's put it that way. It, you know, he was doing great things for Nissan using kind of Renault as, as the as the back as, as the uh, as the fulcrum for that. And recently, he started sort of making noises that sounded like he might be switching the emphasis more in favour of Renault uh, and, and at Nissan's expense. And so the Japanese have pounced. So it's like even if they even if he's guilty of the tax issues, they must have known that for a long time to have um, suddenly brought it all up right here and right now. So corporate governance is is still, uh, you know, unfinished business in Japan. But having said that, looking at these numbers, and, and the other sort of negative about Japan is, of course, is, is the demographics, which means that, you know, you're, you're constantly getting this sort of, you're not getting the rising tide that lifts all boats. You're, you're getting this sort of constant sort of slightly draining tide because the economy keeps uh, getting weaker. But within Japan now, no one looks at Japan. So there is unbelievably good value. I mean, there are opportunities in Japan on a stock-by-stock basis, which, you know, where you can buy companies for close to or in one or two cases, um, temporarily even sometimes below net cash, which means you're getting the company for free. I mean, you know, you just wouldn't see this anywhere else in the world. So I, I think Japan, to buy the index is still possibly, it's possibly a bit early to do that. But to, to go in, go bargain hunting in Japan, I think must make super sense. Those specific stocks that you're referring to, I think there's going to be many people who who'd very much like to know what they are, but I'm guessing that you'll have to subscribe to your service to find out. Is, is that right? Uh, no, um, uh, we don't make any stock recommendations. We're a macro. The clue in the title, macro strategy, we, right. we, we do big picture down uh, and we and we defer to the fund managers uh, for, the, for picking the actual stocks. But there are a number of very, very good uh, funds that are uh, very experienced in Japan. Uh, managed um, from the UK, who are very good at, at finding these bargains. You know, the Bailey Giffords, the Morant Wrights of this world, those people. Could we press you on a sector that you, you particularly like, or is it? But, but I, because it's, uh, it's, it's very stock by stock, you know, it's about yeah, finding yeah, yeah. the value that's been revealed. So it's not, from, it's not that related to sectors or, or the big picture at all in, in Japan. But, you know, right. you don't have to go to Japan. Mm. You know, look at, you know, you can find... You can find single-digit PEs all across the world now, uh, without even trying. You know, the most important thing about the uh, the, the global sort of um, uh, enthusiasm for being very negative is that people keep quoting stock data when they mean to say U.S. So they say stocks are expensive. You know, they're on you know almost the highest multiples they've been on uh, either Cape or, or forward or historic. That they've been on for sort of you know a hundred years or more, and this is very dangerous territory. Well, first of all, it's only American stocks are on that. Um, everywhere else, they're very very close to the to the long run averages, if not below the long run averages. And well, in the US, well, well, say in, in the US, the really interesting thing is that the reason for this is because of the distortions from tech. So tech, which you must bear in mind, on its, uh, to be positive about tech, which I, I'm loath to be at these valuations, but but um, tech is pretty much debt free in the states. So it, it does reveal the fact that we should really be looking at enterprise value, not not PE. Anyway, when talking about these things, but if you uh, if you uh, read the Of Wealth blog, then you can see from that Rob Marstrand has uh, has has taken the tech sector and Amazon out of the U.S. 
uh, data. And that brings the PE down from 22 times to uh, to 13 times trailing. So, uh, and if you look at it from a from a sort of long run, you know, over 100 years basis, the median is 14.7. So, the market X tech is actually cheaper than its long run average before we adjust for the fact that interest rates and bond yields are at super low levels. So, I I personally think that equities are actually looking like they're delivering really good value, and they're not where the danger is. Everyone's assuming that, that as they're getting nervous, that's where the danger is. I think we need to look elsewhere for where the danger is. And I don't think you have to look far, as Tim's alluded to. I think uh, debt and bonds is where the risk is. You know, if, you, if we raise interest rates, let's say, to 5%, equities yielding 9% are about, that's about right. They're already there. But bonds that are yielding less than 2% will be annihilated. But is it possible, James, in your view, that we could have a, a simultaneous bear market for debt and equity? Yes, because uh, the thing which is the primary cause of this is that the Fed are not monetarists. And I'm not sure the ECB are either. So what the ECB is doing is no longer providing the support from QE, which is, and in terms of a, of a net change, is a massive drop in liquidity. And what the Fed are doing is actively taking $50 billion a month out of the market via QT. And they think that tightening by raising interest rates is the only bit of tightening that they're doing. They are under-reporting the amount of tightening they're doing because they're ignoring the impact of QT. So the way to, 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 to hit everything is to take the money away. And that's why we're seeing um, pretty much everything at the moment being hit. But if we're going to have... Uh, there are two elements to that. One, if we're going to have a proper disaster, it means that the fundamentals somewhere have to be get shot. And secondly, we have to rely or we have to assume that the central bankers, they may not realise what they're doing at first, but it doesn't take too long for them to go, you know, could this be us? <laughs> and if they start thinking that way, they're going to go, well, just on the safe side, let's just call, you know, call a halt. So uh, I suspect that um, before the end of 2019, the ECB will have had to restart QE because Europe will be in a recession. And I suspect that the Fed um, will realise that they're doing too much damage and they ought to call a, a halt um, to QT as well. But it should be worth um, saying that the worst period for US QT that we're going to see in this whole cycle is uh, we've just lived through, the fourth quarter of this year. Because How? Of the way, Sorry, go on. Well, because the way they're doing QT is that they are, uh, in many cases, are waiting for bonds to mature. And the and the, uh, the the largest amount of, uh, of bond maturing comes into this fourth quarter, and then the run rate. Although the fifty billion a month is is the cap, they will actually have more like forty billion a month in twenty nineteen maturing. So in actual fact, even if they don't stop QT, it won't be as bad a drain as it's been in the fourth quarter of this year. How, if if at all, does for example gold fit into your worldview? I know nothing about gold. But the only thing I do know about gold is on a long, long, long run basis, gold adjusted for inflation does nothing. Yeah. So uh, on a very, very long run basis, I'm talking one to 200 years here. And above, and at the moment, gold is above that zero point. So that makes me um, slightly disinclined to do any work uh, about gold. But uh, a good friend of mine, Charlie Morris, uh, who is uh, a self-professed uh, expert on the yellow metal, We've had he's him on the show. Turned, well, uh, he's just turned rich. 
And, and so if I wanted to defer to anyone who did know about gold, I would probably ring up Charlie and say, what's your view? And he would tell me what, just what, exactly what his, uh, uh, his latest um, uh, alpha post has said, which is that uh, he's actually, actually, if you read the detail, he's on the cusp of turning bullish. But so many things are, are pointing to, to bullish as he thinks it's really likely that it'll, uh, it'll go over the edge into bullish. So the, the, reason, the reason I ask is that the scenario that you, you paint, which is one of effectively central banks kind of raising a white flag after having done after having started the, the QT process. Um, my, my feel, my suspicion would be that at some point there's a risk that investors globally are just going to think, you know what, you know, you guys have completely lost the plot. You've lost control. You have no credibility. And that's when a crisis of liquidity potentially morphs into a crisis of confidence in currency. Very possibly. But I'm hopeless at speculating. So I like to concentrate on um, trying to analyze what is going on as closely as I possibly can. And uh, that's why I don't have a view in case it comes up later on Brexit. Don't bother asking me. I have no view. We can't get to him started on Brexit. There, it would no, be like no, a well, free we, hour podcast. If you can, if you can I'll, I'll go and get a cup of tea. Um, having, a Christ, <laughs> having a Christmas truce. Glad <laughs> to hear it. Um, you're going so, you know, to play football with the Remainers, Tim. With somebody's head, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but um, it's funny, you know. i tell you what's really funny. Every single person I meet who's not in finance is, and I live in London, so we're talking very much the sort of metrosexual, probably Guardian reading, upper middle class, London, uh, white, um, educated, well-off people. Every single one is a passionate Remainer. But every single person I meet in finance who expresses an opinion, every single one, I have not, I've yet to meet a Remainer in finance. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's very interesting. That's very interesting because we've we've seen the mess in Europe, and we've seen the mess in the financial markets. You know, and for those of you who've got long enough memories, going back to the ERM crises and and then how it was all fudged together, and and it's just a hodgepodge of of, of rules and regulations that get broken. I mean, just look at look what's going on in France now. I mean, it's just it's just it's just ridiculous, and the whole thing's got to got to end at some point. You know, the euro will ultimately fail, I believe. But uh, Paul, 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 in relation to your views about, let's say, that, that your technical perspective yeah. on the market, does what has what James has just said in relation to the equity outlook has that get, has that changed your view at all? In other words, made you slightly less bearish? Well, no, not really. I mean, there's a there was a few things that were were niggling me. I think from the last podcast, and that was that everybody seems to be so bearish here, and and my mm. my view is that it's it's usually the market falls out of a blue sky and that that kind of like we haven't got the blue sky we've got everybody saying it's bearish so i feel like everybody else has engulfed my bearish view if, if you see what i mean and i don't like that and i normally so does, does that mean does that mean you're anticipating a counter trend reversal potentially well i'm just i'm just looking out for potentially a a reversal i think what james was saying was utterly fascinating um and it's it, it, it's great to hear the opposite side now from a technical point of view this is this is what i'm seeing that i think is is interesting first of all the market is definitely as weak as a kitten i mean it's just going down closing at the lows that's a really really not a good sign to be stepping in and, and looking to buy so you know there's definitely you know, more downside risk, and it could get extremely ugly. But having said that, there are a couple of signs that I think are, you know, 
going slightly against that, and that is the euro dollar, for example, you know, being long the dollar just because they're raising interest rates isn't necessarily working here. The euro dollar chart needs to break below the kind of 112 level before I think this this next leg down in the euro dollar can unfold. So what I'm basically saying there is that the, the dollar is not strengthening correctly given that interest rates have just gone up. So what that could mean is obviously that it will weaken. And if it starts to weaken from here because the market's too long dollars, you're likely to see a rally in the equity market because that's kind of like what follows at the moment. Also, there's a, a buy signal uh, in the precious metals market that would kind of underpin that as well. So I think gold and silver look very interesting here for a leg up. And indeed, Bitcoin, I think it finally is making some some lows here that look look like there's some buying coming in. So I, I think cryptocurrencies may look like a safe haven. I think we've cleared out all the early adopters. We've cleared out all these big speculators. We've cleared out people who don't know what they're doing and they've just jumped in. Um, so now I think is an interesting time to potentially go in with a small amount of money and just see see what happens here, you know. And so it's so out of favour. Then why not? Um, so do you cover do you cover crypto, uh, James? Um, well, we've looked at the fundamentals behind crypto, and uh, and not uh, found any. <laughs> not found any. Um, I mean, basically speaking, if if people have become so disillusioned, they've started to buy back into Bitcoin. I would say that uh, that we're within. Uh, weeks or possibly days of the bottom of the market because you'd have to be so disillusioned with real stuff to go into into bitcoin i mean don't get me wrong you know markets have sentiment so the fact that i'm saying they're offering value doesn't mean i think they bottom uh on uh you know uh, on the 27th no. it means though that i think you know we we went into 2018 with a very sharp rally in the s p even though we had qt uh, on the horizon. So the outlook, I actually wrote a piece in January of, of this year saying, uh, called Winter is Coming, um, alluding obviously very closely to one of my favorite TV shows, uh, and basically pointing out that across all markets we were we were looking at, with the possible exception of the UK, which had the problem of Brexit, we were looking at a severe deterioration in liquidity because of central bank policy. And yet we had a market that had opened the year's account with a massive surge. They used to say, as January goes, so goes the year. I don't think they'll be saying that much any longer. But we had a massive rally in, in January, and that was it. You know, uh, the market did make a, a new high in the summer, technically, but basically, you know, then we've been absolutely hammered into the end of the year. So um, I think that 2019 has a good chance of being the exact opposite. We're going to go into the beginning of the year about as bearish as it's possible to be, with nobody holding any speculative long positions except maybe in gold and Bitcoin. <clears throat> and everyone's going to look at it and go, you know what, that's quite good value. Or you know what, did you know what the PE of that is now? And things like that. And I, mm. and I just think that, uh, you know, whereas 2018 looked way too optimistic with deteriorating fundamentals, I think 2019 looks way too pessimistic with a good chance that... Um, several fundamentals will actually be forced to improve as the central bankers go, I I'm worried that this might be us. Well, when we started and we were talking about you know, having, let's say, the, the right view, but, but using the wrong vehicle, the wrong process um, to exploit it, is, is, there a, is there a possibility that if, the, if there is a, a route, a, a real fully fledged route in the bond markets, that the bond market is itself so huge, it's such a super tanker, that that can actually have knock-on effects into other asset classes. Well, as I said before, the, 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 the issue with the bond market is that it's really two markets. 
And uh, although they do, they are tied to each other, the one that really gets hit um, will either be uh, sovereigns if it's if the economy is strong and we get inflation. I think that's less likely. Or corporates if um, the economic news is, is pretty bad. There's something like a trillion dollars, according to Guggenheim Partners, a trillion dollars of triple B, which is investment grade corporate debt in the US, um, uh, that could flip to um, sub-investment grade at the flick of a switch. And and that that means that these are four sellers because yeah. many funds can only hold investment grade bonds. So you know I think a route in the corporate uh, bond market probably starting actually offshore U.S. because the U.S. economy is probably the strongest one we've got out there. But um, but certainly that is a potential trigger. But now you're dragging me into speculation, which I I prefer not to do because I'm so rubbish at it. Well, the the other thing that interests me about that is that there's a, a potential knock on effect. Um, allied to the role of ETFs, which are offering a guarantee of liquidity that may not be there in a in a in a, in a false market. Well, another thing which is really interesting on that, I had lunch the other day with uh, 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 a newly retired fund manager um, who was working at uh, previously been working at uh, a, a household name um, fund manager who had a very very strong bond team, mm. and they said to him, you know, come and look at this. They said, look at this. Every single bit of garbage, especially emerging market, but not exclusively, every bit of high yield garbage that gets issued is picked up immediately by the ETS. So if you want to know who's holding the rubbish, these guys wreck. Anyone with a brain doesn't buy this rubbish. But the ETFs, by definition, have zero brain. That's like 100-year Argentina. Uh, it's like yes, it's like everything that's rubbish. If you want to, if you, you know, all you've got to do, if if you're so anyone who's holding a high yield ETF, should expect a very unpleasant 2019. What I'm seeing short term in the technicals is that that the market doesn't look like it's done selling, and I I'm personally looking for a bigger crisis than 2007 2008. I think that's on the cards. Um, how it unfolds, obviously, is the the million dollar question. Does it? start now is this it are we is this the top and we're going to go all the way down to those lows and maybe even more before we see another huge bull market or have we got i what, can't oh, see that or see yeah or or do we get why what, do you think it's bigger as 2007 8 why do Firstly, i think what do you think happened in 2007 8 um to make it so big do you think it was a fundamentals problem a liquidity problem a valuation problem because presumably we all agreed that 2000 uh, that um, the dot com was a valuation problem. Well, if, if I can explain my sort of perspective on that, I mean, I, I I've worked in the financial markets for you know since the early nineties, and my first foray into the into finance was working as a mortgage officer in a bank, and I actually went through the specifications that you needed to go through to get a mortgage and then when we you fast forward to you know 2000 when people are just being given mortgages for the sake of you know just being able to write their name you know that there's a problem so the way i look at things is through the lens of the of of kind of logic and also looking at the chart so i'm a tech, technician now i saw massive reversal patterns in all the banks so huge huge reversal patterns in all the all the banks and all the um, property stocks looked like they were just going to get taken to the cleaners. And that was 2007. So that was my view that we were going to see an absolutely massive correction because that's kind of what technicals tells you. The bigger the reversal setup, the more selling power is building up, the bigger the down move. And so that has been responded to by another 
response by the uh, you know the fed and, and and what have you the central banks to reinflate the market because that's their only response to anything get this market up at all costs even what draghi says get this market up at all costs now nothing in life is a one way bet eventually this has got to come to an end eventually we've got to see a crash that the market doesn't come back from and that that's just logic you can't have every single correction re- convert into a bull market at every point you know so as you were saying at the top of the show investors have got to be given a situation that they have never seen before and what history has taught us is every single crash was a buying opportunity except for this one that's coming up and so how could you get a big crash well the only way to do that is to get all the banks all the companies so levered up with debt that when interest rates start to go up, there's nowhere to hide. There's nowhere to run. The banks have got it. The the central banks have got it. And indeed, the governments have got it. So you're looking at potential government failures. On top of that, you've got a potential explosion going on in Europe where the euro could fail. So these are all things that the, the euro itself is, has been creaking. It was Just look at what's going on in Italy, which we know is going to be the one that, that causes the straw to break the camel's back when it comes to the euro. So th- there are... there are All huge, France. All France, yeah. But it's more more likely to be Italy, in my view. Well, it always has been that would go first and then everything else would, would follow. So I, to- I totally take your view here that, that we could be in for another leg up. I'd actually like to see another leg up because I think that would then reconvince everybody that the market is always a buy and then when it starts to come down again they'll they'll ignore it and just keep buying and th- therefore it's a rather, it's a rather ghoul- that's a rather ghoulish perspective paul if you don't mind me saying um well it'll, I, it'll sucker a few more people onto the titanic no no I, I, it's not it's not like that at all it's just market psychology it's just how mar- you know i'm trying to read the psychology of the market and it's like in, in a totally impassive way i don't i don't i don't want people to lose money and i don't want it to hurt it's just that i think that's these are warning signs for me. I, I, it would be nice to, you know, from many perspectives, the charts would look better, if you like. And I know that might sound strange. I suppose, I suppose sorry to interrupt, I suppose the purist in me um, has a similar view, which is one of frustration that there was never a proper cleansing of the system in, in 08. Yeah. That, that, that there was interfere, the, con, you know, the, the sort of interference that you've already alluded to. And, you know, it, uh, 07, 08, 08 in particular was a you know, grotesque bear market, but it never reached a, a historic bear market low. Yeah. Bear markets don't end with the market on whatever it was, mid-teens multiples. They, you know, the real proper bear markets end with a P, P of four or three. Yeah, yeah. and it's, there's, there's never been a price to pay for all of this. You know? to, to me, it's like you, you can't just keep gaming the market. Inherently, that seems wrong to me. You know, if you go back to the 1930s when nobody wanted to own stocks, like owning stocks was like a crazy thing to do because they'd lost so much money. My view is that everything goes in cycles and we've just enjoyed the longest period of no brainer buy stocks. They always go up, you know, and and more. I mean, on steroids. And so. At some point, that's got to end. I'm not necessarily. And you can make you can make the same point for property as well. Do yes, you know I mean, is exactly. property something that if you look at, uh, James? Yeah. Well, actually, <clears throat> listening to uh, to Paul talking there, I'm I'm thinking of your earlier point about sort of you know getting it almost all right, but, but are we looking at sort of slightly the wrong point? 
you know, I think there's too much of a, an equity-centric view here. If you look at the long-run history, equities haven't done anything different to what they've done as far as we can tell for the last 200 years. But bonds definitely have. Bonds in the last 35 years have done as well as equities. And they're not supposed to. We have we have an entire you know business school sort of set, set of courses teaching about the equity risk premium, which were all predicated on the observation <clears throat> when they first came up with the theory in the 1980s that equities always do better than bonds. But, but I in think actual fact, I you could already highlighted. That the, I think you've already highlighted the problem, though, James, which is is risk premium plus. So if there's no risk premium, it's difficult to value this stuff. Yes, but um, but the, the the point I'm just trying to make is that if you look at the relatives of bonds and equities, a dispassionate observer, I think, has to step back and say there has been a massive distortion over the last 35 years. One asset class has done incredibly well compared to what we'd expect of it on a long-run basis. Yeah. But that's not equities. It's bonds. And therefore, it is, it's, we've got to look for the bond crash if you want to spot the real, real big one. But as Tim mentioned earlier, if bonds crash... I can't see equities rallying in that environment. It's just, it's, it just doesn't seem. I mean, look, I'm not saying it won't because you never say never in the markets. We all know that, but it would seem very unlikely that that equities could rally. I'd, I'd be very interested to see that. I'd be very interested. I think your your views absolutely fascinating, James. I really, really do. I think it's, uh, it's always good to hear another side to the market. To summarize how I look at the markets, really, it, from a trader's perspective, it's. What is the market doing right now? You know, so I'm not I'm not telling the market what to do. At the moment, it's weak. At the moment, it's going down. At the moment, the levels have been broken that suggest that it's this is going to extend. How far? Well, the market will tell me. I'm not, I don't tell the market what to do. If we are in a situation where bonds are collapsing and equities are going up, that's fine. If Bitcoin goes up, then it's time to buy. If it starts to crash again, you know, some people think it's going to go to zero. I don't necessarily disagree with that. Some people say it's going to go to 100,000 or whatever. That could still be possible. I don't tell the market what to do. So my view is, my outlook is to look at the signs of what the market wants to do and just not be on the wrong side of that. So it, it's it's setting up to be an absolutely fascinating 2019. To say that equities won't go down here sounds like a, well, not, well, will go down, but will we'll fall into an area of value um, if they fall much further, and historic value, not just short term, is I think a very interesting call. Well, I, I'm, you know, I wouldn't disagree with you on the short term stuff because it's not playing to my strengths at all. Um, so, uh, but you know, it's not without um, possibility that, that we could both be right. As in, the market falls further from here, but I'm I'm saying it's already offering value, mm. but it's not offering the sort of value which historically springboards it straight back up again. If you look at the um, the sell-offs in the market that we had uh, both in the sort of 2008 and um, with the uh, the sovereign debt crisis in Europe in 2011, in both of those uh, scenarios, uh, we had the earnings yield of the of the UK market going to not nine percent where it is now, but 12 percent. So you know you could be looking at a at a whole new sort of um, 20 30 percent drop is possible, but from both of those points it shot back up. So um, once you're already offering value. You're starting to pull on the bowstring, and I and, and there's nothing wrong with pulling on the bowstring even more, particularly if your charts are telling you that mm. it's going to go down even more in the near term. You know that the negative we've already remarked on the on the widespread negative sentiment. It's not just widespread across all asset classes; it's deep. You know, mm. you, you you yourself are talking about kind of end of times 
type um, scenarios, uh, although they may not be this one, as it were. And that's very much my view. I, I think that um, the sentiment has already got sufficiently negative that we are almost guaranteed weaker prices in the short term, but that that is already presenting us with some interesting value. And, and, and in terms of bonds versus equities, I'll give you a little scenario that, that is totally feasible. So let's say that the um, UK um, gilt market, um, 30-year gilt, the yield doubles. So it's a 30-year. It's not going to quite uh, halve the price, but it'll, it'll do. It'll pretty much nearly halve the price. So the gilt market halves. The gilts now are yielding four percent. Actually, they're not. <laughs> they're yielding about three point eight or something. The uh, dividend yield of the UK stock market at the moment is 4.5%. The last time that gilts, 30-year gilts, were yielding 4%, the dividend yield, this is pre-crisis, um, and a bit actually post-crisis, the dividend uh, yield of the market was something in the region of 3.5%. Uh, so we're already getting a substantial premium to the last time gilts yields were, were up at that sort of level. So I, I think that although the um, the near term environment would be tricky, you know, if you have sort of reports of bond markets coming under pressure, but where's the money going to get flow from the bond markets too? Mm. Um, so I don't think it's un inconceivable that equities do okay. I mean, every time equities have an absolute annihilation, bonds do fantastically because the money flows back into bonds for safety. And they have recently it's as well. Yeah, well, recently bonds have done very little compared to what equities have done. So equities have uh, and equities outside of the U.S. have done worse than equities in the U.S. And equities in the uh, outside of the U.S. hadn't had the rally that the U.S. equities had had. So uh, you know, across the board, outside of the U.S., you, you've got what is now already very good value. It's not um, immediate springboard value that would require another hit, but it is already really good value for the long-term investor. Um, and in the U.S., you can get pretty similarly good value as long as you. Uh, Issue um, going anywhere near tech or Amazon, but they have their own virtues because they are debt free. So I think the real killer here is going to be not really analysing the stuff we're used to in the way we used to, but looking for equities that are providing really good value and don't have the debt risk. What about um, eurozone uh, banks, James? Any any strong views there? Yeah, I, I do actually have very strong views oh, on eurozone banks. I would love to hear this. Um, if you look at the trouble with none of our central bankers, except for Mervyn King being monetarists, is that they all did QE without really believing in it or knowing what it was. And if you think that sounds like too much of a statement, read, I don't suggest you do read um, um, the memoirs of Ben Bernanke, because it's just the most awful, self-satisfying, non-economic load of tosh I've oh, waded through in the last, there's my, there's my negative book review for the last day. <laughs> but, what, what was really interesting about it was, apart from the fact that when he was talking about QE, he basically only had a, a little um, subheading in the notes underneath the bottom of one page where he made four factual errors in two sentences, which no. is quite impressive for the ex-chairman of the Fed. Um, but he also is most famous for his quote that uh, QE shouldn't have worked in theory, but it did in practice. Well, yeah. A, if it wasn't good in theory, why on earth did you deploy it in the first place? Question one. And question two... He's not talking about monetarist theory, where it, it absolutely had a role and absolutely worked. So therefore, he's, he's revealing what a dyed-in-the-wool neo-Keynesian he is, who don't believe in this at all. But this is a real problem, because the ECB did as much QE as the US did, proportional to their economy, but they squeezed it into three short years, not the six that, that the US had done it over. And now they've withdrawn it without 
barely a blink uh, or, or an observation as to what the underlying environment is like. Now, there's two ways, essentially, that you can increase money supply. Banks can create new money by making new loans, or you can do QE. And the reason you do QE is because the banks are uh, technically insolvent and are so busy repairing their own balance sheets they're not making any new loans. Therefore, you don't stop QE until the banks are ready to lend again. Now, new loan growth in Europe for the last three years has averaged less than 1% nominally, which is a decrease in real terms. And if you take out France, where something very weird is going on, um, it's actually been negative. So you've had no to zero to possibly even negative loan growth in Europe, and they're taking away the QE. So what do we think 2019 money supply growth will be like in Europe? It could be dangerously close to zero, which is a recession, possibly worse than a recession. And, and that what do banks in a zero interest rate environment who are making no new loans tell you? They're telling you that their problem is not liquidity or the price of credit. Their problem is that even if you gave them unlimited cheap credit, they're not going to lend it. And the only reason a bank doesn't lend money is because they know they have hidden legacy loan losses, which would erode their capital. So therefore, their problem is they haven't got enough capital to support even their existing risk assets, let alone growing their risk assets. That's so when the European... Lot, sorry, sorry to interrupt, James. That's sounding an awful lot like we've come full circle and that, that Europe is now experiencing what Japan did in the 1990s. Totally. And for the same reason, they didn't clear house. You know, the, the, the Americans cleared house aggressively and we lost half the household name big banks that we all used to know, you know, from Bear Stearns and Lehman Brothers through uh, Frank Merrill Lynch, who, who were subsumed into Bank of America. We lost Washington Mutual. Uh, we lost Wachovia. You know, half the names, if you wrote out your top 20 banks just before the crisis in the US, are gone. And that's what the Americans do so well. They go, you know, let's get in there and clean house. And if you can't, uh, if you can't hack it, we close you down or we merge you into someone who can hack it. And as a consequence, the US banks have come out, um, you know, looking super fit and after this sell off, super cheap too. Um, but then if you look at Europe, they did nothing. UK, got, UK, UK banks? UK banks are kind of kind of in the middle. I, I, all the evidence would suggest to me that UK banks are now fixed with the one proviso that what they never did any house cleaning on was mortgages, which you don't have to worry about when interest rates are zero. But you might have to worry about further down the track if either house prices fall or interest rates go up. So the UK banks are kind of fixed, but with a sort of quite a heavy but. I mean, having said that, they're very, very cheap. Um, so US banks are definitely the safest, and now they've, they've sold off actually very, very cheap um, option. European banks, now we go into continental Europe, wow, we've got a problem. Not only do they have hardly any capital on a, on a, a level playing field basis compared to, I mean, it's not quite half the amount of capital the US banks have, but it's dangerously close to that and way less than UK banks. But they also haven't done enough loan loss recognition, which implies they've got um, hidden losses still on their books, which they can't work out what to do with. And we know that's there, but the confirmation that that's there is that they won't increase lending. So it would appear that European banks have kicked the can down the road. And um, as we know from Japan, because the banks are the way of increasing money supply, if all the banks are kicking the can down the road, there is no one to increase money supply. Therefore, there is no uh, recovery to bail them out. And that is, I, I think, is very much what European uh, Europe is facing. And I think the European banks are at the core of it. So I think they look very, very worrying. I know we said we wouldn't talk Brexit, and I don't, don't really intend to, but I, I just make the observation that Brexit couldn't be coming at a worse time for the European banking system, could it? 
And I, I'm amazed that we've come out of the negotiations as poorly as we have done, given that you would think these people do want access to our capital markets. Well, I don't think there was a negotiation. There was a completely intransigent EU that just stood there saying no. <laughs> and we beat ourselves up about trying to get a, a reasonable deal. And personally speaking, I think we should have said right from the get-go, you know what, we'll, we'll negotiate from a position of strength. So it's um, we voted out, we're out. Uh, now, if you think that this is causing disruption and inconvenience, we agree with you. Let's, let's start negotiating. But we did it the wrong way around. And as a consequence, we've shot ourselves in the foot, I fear. But uh, but getting out from Europe before the really big bills arrive, that might turn out to be our greatest coup. Because when Europe falls apart, everybody above the halfway line will have to bail out everybody below the halfway line. Yes. And we I, were I, above I, the halfway I, line. I notice you say when and not if there, James. Well, I think in many respects, from a financial point of view, it has already happened. Look at target two imbalances. You know, you, you can't you can't create. You think about the UK. In the borough of Westminster, they take um, uh, rate revenue, uh, business rates revenue um, of uh, and others, uh, but mainly businesses of one point two billion pounds. And their entire budget that they're allowed to spend of that is 200 million. So where does the billion go? Every single person who buys an, an overinflated valued cup of coffee in Westminster is sending uh, half the, the value of that coffee north to all points north to all the, uh, um, the, the local um, borough councils who don't raise much in business rates because it goes into the centralised pot and gets redistributed. Now, you know, we don't make a feature of advertising that because people might get pissed off. In America, you know, if you live on the coasts, half of what you pay in your taxes gets pumped into the middle to bail out the middle. But in Europe, it doesn't. In Europe, um, the, uh, they've, they've, they've joined their monetary policy, they've joined their currency, but they haven't set up a system to redistribute wealth from the efficient and productive bits to the unproductive bits, which means the unproductive bits build up more and more debt and get more and more desperate, more and more unhappy with their austerity. And the productive bits uh, sit there saying, you should learn some, some discipline. But the target to imbalances means that the productive bits are already forced to send their money via the banking system across to um, to the to the unproductive bits. So all we really need now is the denouement where everybody kind of like everybody in Westminster wakes up and realizes where all their taxes go. Everybody in Germany has to wake up and realize that all their taxes have to go south or it falls apart. And when it falls apart, it will be you think Brexit's messy. <laughs> so. Uh, you know, I think it, no matter what happens, I suspect that we will look back on this and say we were just so lucky to get out when we did, and we should have been out earlier. That's if they let us out. We had um, we had we had a, a guest on about uh, maybe six months ago now, John Hearn, who's uh, an economist and uh, teacher, and uh, he, he has this say recurring dream whereby it's ten years in the future, everyone else has left, and we're still negotiating to leave. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yeah, well, I, I must admit, that, you know, you know. The, the devil will be in the detail, and, and that, that's you know why I would have preferred a, a clean Brexit than then negotiate back in mm -hmm. the things you want. Because if we have a, a Brexit where certain things are sort of you know put in as backstops or whatever else you want to call them, the great risk is we do wake up at some stage and go, oh, someone left us committed to bailing out any future financial disaster, or someone left us with a on the hock for for this, that, or the other, um, and that you know is obviously. Um, a worry, but uh, I thought we'd agree we weren't going to talk about Brexit. Yeah, I mean, actually, I just want to quickly mention emerging markets because the the way the markets are going down at the moment feel very much like the emerging markets a few months ago when 
they looked like they were all going to hell. And then suddenly we saw this massive rally. So I just wondered whether you had an, an opinion on that at all, James. Well, you know, emerging markets are really just like all the uh, all the other markets I was talking about, the developed world markets. You know, they got really cheap. They haven't quite got as cheap as we know they can. Mm. I think you'll correct me, but I think and there's such a wide group anyway. But I yeah. think they got down to like 10 times earnings. So 10 percent earnings yield. And, and um, normally they bottom at eight. So, you know, if you were if you were holding out for the for the for the, you know, the traditional super low bargain, you you didn't quite get it. Um but you know that you know the risk the risk to a bear market always comes from the valuations of the fundamentals. The only thing that can trip you up is what if, in this sort of panicky negative sentiment slide, someone turns around and says the emperor has got some clothes, mm. and then suddenly you know we can we can squeeze the shorts and off we go. And I you know I like to think that most um, sell-offs are are quite predictable. In 1987 sell-off, although everyone agrees in inverted commas that we have no idea what caused it. It was actually quite clear, I think, what caused it. Uh, it was the fact that bond yields had uh, quietly gone up and up and up. So we'd had a bear market in bonds all through the year and equities had gone up. So the, the gap between bond yields and earnings yields had widened and widened and widened. And then uh, when the sell-off started, the robots took over. And uh, But why did we stop where we stopped? If you look at the, the figures, we stopped when the equity earnings yield hit the same level as the bond yield. What happened in 87, there was just massive speculation. I mean, there were stories of like, you know, accountants, assistant accountants or whatever, earning £14,000 a year, running um, trading accounts up to half a million to a million pounds worth of equities. So everybody well, as, was... As Warren Buffett said, every time the tide goes out, you'll discover who's swimming naked. Exactly. and that, yeah, I, just, so, I don't think it yeah. really matters when you have a bust in the markets. There are always people who've got access to cheap credit or who are gambling everything. Uh, you'll only find those people or see them if we have a market bust, because most of them tend to be consensus traders. And, and, the, and the bust, obviously, is a break in the consensus positivity into negativity. And that's when they, they all get revealed. I mean, there was someone on the, on the news just the other day who lost 99% of his punting fund in the U.S., uh, basically being whipsawed by the tech stocks, by the fangs. Mm. Um, you know, he was... Uh, he was long and then they fell and then he uh, shorted them uh, big time. I think it was particularly Amazon and it had a bit of a bounce and that wiped out 99% of his fund. And then someone else came on and said, well, I just lost 99% of my fund too. So, you know, you'll always find people getting highly leveraged and then getting wiped out um, in any market that that has a reversal, I think. The 87 example was that like the tech boom and bust of 2000, it was very similar. You just had like teachers, nightclub bouncers, uh, everybody in their dog spot, just buying the stuff, but not knowing anything about it, just hearing that that was the, the next big thing. And, oh, hello, Bitcoin, what did it just do? I mean, it, history just repeats itself. So 87, looking forward, the valuations were, were valid. It's just that the market got ahead of itself and caused this excessive virtuous circle, if you like, of, of speculation that then turned into a vicious circle. That's happened time and time again, as we've seen. There's been many big examples of it. So in the end, as, as you say, it's it's what, what are the I guess what the values are, whether there is real value in the market, whether it's really worth buying for the, the longer term. But again, we've got to look at things that could trip all of that up. And I guess there are many of those things coming forward. But it does seem like this sentiment, as you say, is so negative from all quarters. And it's it really wasn't like that in 2008. Most people were just focused on on the upside. And, and that's where I see the difference here. So I, I have a lot of 
you know, sympathy for the view that the market could bounce. So very interesting times coming up. Well, I think that's that sentiment thing mixed in with the, with the fundamental value is the biggest risk to this bear market. Mm. You know, if this if you imagine that this bear market is a person and they're going, hey, I'm getting more and more momentum, more and more followers. This is looking great for me. You know, we've only just begun. If I was that bear market, I would be looking over both shoulders on the one side to the fact that sentiment's already very negative and very widespread and over the other shoulder to the fact that there's a lot of value building here, even even now. In fact, because many markets sold off without ever going up first, you know, they were quite good value before they sold off. Now they're, they're, they're offering, you know, what, what is the what is the dividend yield or the, or the earnings yield that makes everyone go, you know what, I'm sorry, I'm in. You know, historically, it's about uh, in a real proper crash. It's six yeah. percent dividend yield, and we're already at four and a half. Uh, in a real proper crash, it's twelve percent earnings yield, and we're already at nine. You know, we could go lower. Don't get me wrong, but the lower we go, the cheaper it gets, the better it get value it gets. And at some point, although financial markets are notorious for 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 not looking at value, you know, instead of when you give someone ten percent discount, they actually tend more to panic than to to buy it unlike a normal shopper. Um, in this market, you know, we keep giving people another 10% discount and at some stage, bang, I think they, they're going to bounce. And if everyone has got so negative that they've gone short, then obviously we could have um, some real unpleasantness. But the fundamentals in the bond market, they are nothing like as, as good. You know, either we have a disaster uh, economically, which means that the, the, um, the sovereign bonds are actually a buy. In fact, particularly the Treasury up at sort of you know three percent yields. Um, but if that's the case, then the corporate bonds are going to have a really tough time of it because they're going to get downgraded and their spreads are going to blow out. Uh, if instead we have we're actually saved by the bell and the economy is fine, um, then these very low unemployment rates and uh, squeezed um, labour markets would suggest we're going to get this sort of two and a half percent. Uh, uh, inflation rate will suddenly have a jump towards three, three and a half. That would be disastrous for sovereign bonds, many of which are yielding near zero in Europe, but um, probably not so bad for the corporates. But I do feel that if fundamentals change, um, some part of the bond market looks most vulnerable. What you say about investor psychology is interesting. It reminds me of a, a line by one of the US investment bloggers who said, you know, the stock market is the only place where the things go on sale and everyone rushes out the shop. <laughs> yeah, well, was Warren Buffett's way of talking about that was he says, in my family, we like hamburgers when they're cheap. Mm. He also can't understand it, why people get more negative the cheaper things get. It implies they never had any valuation model in their mind when they bought, which probably actually describes 80% of the market anyway. In the, in the defense of the sort of you know, perhaps irrational hamburger consumer, the, the, there is a distinction I would make between people who are managing a finite pot of capital versus people who are still working and are still saving. Um, because the people with a finite pot have the finite pot and that's irreplaceable money. So they're, they're looking after a fixed pot that, that cannot be replaced. Whereas the person that's still working, still earning, is basically dollar cost averaging into the market. So there is a distinction between the two. Um, the, the kind of people that we invest on behalf of are people who only have the fixed pot. So that, that gives us a slightly different perspective on risk to someone who, frankly, can take a very long term view. That's the only point I'd make. Not all savers, not all investors are exactly the same. No, absolutely. I mean, you know, and also, you know, we, as we've just been discussing, I mean, you could talk about value. Most of the markets were showing good value before their recent sell off. Mm. So, you know, 
value gives you these these nice comfort feelings in terms of um, what are my my returns over the next decade are likely to be like, but they they give you no comfort whatsoever in terms of what my returns over the next quarter will be like. In fact, as Paul has, has made the point, momentum's much more likely to be your guide in the near term. So things are much more likely to get worse. The issue is, is it already too late to sell? And if things get significantly worse and you do have some cash, should you put it in Bitcoin or should you go and put it in the stock market? And that's where I'm angling my recommendations, as it were. Again, it's, it may not make sense to put it into something like Bitcoin when you're going to get a yield on buying equities. Um, but it's, to my mind, it's not necessarily what makes sense to us doing an analysis. It's what the market ends up doing. You know, if Bitcoin starts to go up very fast and equities don't, then you're, you're, you know, that, that's where I'm looking for the next trade, if you like. But I guess when you're, you've got such an overarching longer term view, you know, a sort of 20%, 30% rally in Bitcoin is irrelevant when, you know, you're expecting the next five, 10, however many years to see a rally in equities. And this, you could look back and say, well, what a great opportunity this was. So I, it really does come down to timing in the end. But um, absolutely fascinating. James, is there anything else you wanted to add before we go to media picks? Um, one quick quote and one quick uh, addition. My quick uh, quote is quoting myself because <laughs> uh, I tell you, I'm very sympathetic with um, with technicals. And in fact, I've never met anyone in my career who got less keen on technicals. Almost everyone develops more and more respect for them because they're the way of finding out what everyone else thinks. You already yes. know what you think. How do we find out what everyone else thinks? But I've always said uh, to anyone who, where this discussion has come up, where they say, are, are you keen on fundamentals or technicals? I feel like a gladiator about to go into the arena. And someone asking me whether I'd rather have a shield, a shield or a sword. Mm. I'd like to have both, please. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, and Absolutely. so I'd like to use technicals for timing uh, and for positioning and for picking prices and entry points or, or exit points. And I'd like fundamentals to be there to give me confidence that when the technicals uh, start working in my favor, they, they have legs. And that's why I would prefer equities um, to go bargain hunting for equities and no, go nowhere near Bitcoin. Because Bitcoin may have the technicals. But to my mind, it hasn't got any fundamentals um, to rely on at all. Um, and you could make and you could make the same point about bonds fundamentally. And I think you can make the same point about bonds fundamentally. And I'm afraid to say you can make the same sort of point about gold. But um, let's not go there. <laughs> so my 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 remaining um, the thing I would say is that the in the same way that the European uh, uh, ECB um, looked at the recovery in GDP in Europe and didn't think to themselves, hold on, could this all just be our QE? And therefore didn't realize that removing QE could could completely sink the GDP recovery. I think uh, everyone might be making the same mistake with oil. The reason why the oil price has gone down appears to be absolutely based on uh, supply, not demand. And uh, that increase in supply is because Trump told everybody he was going to cut Iranian oil from exports from a peak of 2.8 million barrels a day to zero. And in anticipation of that pressure, everybody cancelled oil contracts with Iran. So their um, oil exports already by November had fallen to something like 1.1 million barrels. So they'd already more than halved. But meantime, everybody else was was pumping like mad. OPEC effectively in Vienna, uh, not in Vienna, this is where they reversed it, uh, in the summer, cancelled their, um, their compliance a limit. So basically everybody in OPEC who had agreed to um, only produce a certain amount, all, all bets were off and everybody in OPEC pumped as much as they liked. 
And then Trump offered waivers for um, the, the countries that were dealing with Iran and buying their oil. So Iran had stopped pumping the oil. Everybody else went to max production. Um, and then Trump said, well, actually, I'd, I'd, I, you know, maybe you, you could keep pumping oil, Iran. So suddenly the world's gone to, from you know, normal to a glut in the space of like a month and a half. Wow. And it was all because everybody was trying to anticipate that Trump would do what he said, which is what we've now learned is a mistake because <laughs> he never does. But, but anyway, what happens now is that we now cut about 1.2 million barrels a day starting at the beginning of the year as OPEC goes back on to compliance, which is about the excess that was created for this uh, flood. And then there's a really important but little known uh, change in the maritime law, which comes in uh, at the very end of 2019, which will reduce the amount of sulfur content in marine bunker fuels from 3.5% to 0.5%, which will probably take about 2 million barrels a day out of the market as people use that normal light sweet crude to dilute their sour, which is, refers to the sulfur content, um, heavies that they have already. So therefore, we are very likely in the next 12 months to go from super glut to quite serious shortage. Um, and on top of that, uh, at these price levels, um, shale is unprofitable. In fact, shale's never made any money at all. And 80% of all the increase in the world's crude production since 2010 has been shale. And so far, the losses are about $300 billion. So, and the shale investors who in the early days were easily sold on the fact that, you know, don't you worry, you'll get your money soon, are starting to go, okay, it's been a decade nearly. I haven't got my money back. The oil price is weak. Let's pull out. And for the first time ever, we've got the prospect now of a whole host of US shale producers actually cutting budgets for 2019. Normally, their response to a fallen oil prices is to pump even harder to try and get some cash flow in. So I think that um, everyone's very complacent about oil. And if you want to look at the biggest risk to the economic outlook, I think that risk is that oil makes quite a handsome recovery next year, wow. which is good for oil, but bad for everyone else. That's brilliant insight. Thank you, James, for that. So, Tim, I think that that's just leaves us to, to go on to media picks, don't you? Absolutely. Absolutely. Shall I kick off? Yeah, if you could, that'd be brilliant. Okay, so the first thing I'd do, mention dispatches for a friend, David Collum, who is a chemistry uh, professor at Cornell. But he also puts a, for some years now, he's put out a year in review uh, piece, which is just outstanding reading. Very, very funny, very, very witty, very, very dry. Um, I had the pleasure to meet Dave in Las Vegas last year, and hopefully we'll have him on the show in future. But uh, you can read this. It's 200 plus pages. But it's, it's an absolutely fascinating read. Lots of links, appendices, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, 2018 Year in Review. You can find it at peakprosperity.com, uh, which is published in full. And you can download the PDF. We'll put a link to it in the show notes. So that's that's the, the text. Um, in terms of films, I made the mistake of watching The Shape of Water the other day. Uh, that's an hour and a half or two hours. I'm not going to, never going to see again. Totally, um, totally yeah. here, here on that. I watched not, not, two days Not going to get not going to get that time back, sadly. Um, <laughs> as my as my fiance made the point, um, is it Guillermo del Toro? Yes, who's the director who, yes. who m m mysteriously won an Oscar for for this turkey. Um, as 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 my fiance pointed out, he's basically remade uh, Splash without the jokes and and managed to garner four Oscars in the process. An absolutely shambolic thing, complete waste of time. Uh, I would be 
more anti it, but it is the season of goodwill, so I'll move on. Seven Psychopaths, <laughs> however, I did enjoy watching during the week uh, from the same people, same writer and director that brought us uh, three billboards outside. Martin um, McDonough, yeah. Yeah, Martin McDonough. Um, uh, just very, very funny. It's got Christopher Walken. So for, for Christopher Walken, completist alone, it's, uh, it's a terrific film. Very funny, uh, quite violent, quite gruesome, but uh, uh, a nice, a nice little, a nice little sort of round off to the year for me. Cause I hadn't, I, I missed it when it, when it came out. All and right. last night, last night was watching Casablanca oh. and there is a certain type of film uh, that has a reputation for being outstanding, but it has a reputation of being outstanding because it is outstanding. Um, absolutely superb film you watch it now and it's like it's like a, a classic film but, but it, compared to modern films it's like it's been shot and is being shown at twice normal speed because these great one-liners just just come at you like machine gun bullets it's it's just terrific so for, for anyone that has heard that casablanca is one of the best films ever made it is but it but but, but some sometimes people are a little bit wary about engaging for you know because they're overrated but casablanca is an absolute classic so if you've yet to see it don't miss out this Christmas. Thank you, Tim. Absolutely amazing. Um, mine are, I'm listening to a podcast called In the Dark. I don't know if you've heard of this, but it's, uh, it's it, there are two seasons and the uh, I prefer the second season. The first season's about a boy who gets abducted. This is real crime uh, in America and uh, the, the, the following sort of investigation into it and how it was pretty much botched. Um, but the second one is just, you just would not believe this story of, uh, of this guy called Curtis Flowers who's been on trial for the same crime. I, I believe it's now the seventh time and how this has come about. It's it's called In the Dark is the podcast. Uh, so season two, I would highly recommend it. It's just absolutely fascinating and insight. Into it sounds a bit like, it sounds a bit like make, making a murderer. Yeah, possibly. Yeah, it, it sounds similar. I've not watched that, and uh, but I really want to, want to watch it because so many people say it's great but I, I again it's just amazing journalism amazing insight into how the systems work i mean it's, these people have done more research than the police department which is just amazing and they've got like bank analyst type sort of strategies for finding out what's what's gone on and get, get to the real truth so as much as you know hearing their side of it is the real truth i mean let's face it we don't never really know but from what they've they presented it's a, a really compelling stuff so i really enjoyed that and you can't be christmas without trading places you've got to you've got to dust oh, of off your, you've got to dust off your copy and and watch trading places because that's that's just it's just the law basically so looking good billy ray beef, looking good beef, beef, beef jockey <laughs> <laughs> We're not going to start with the impressions again, are we? <laughs> we better not. That'd be uh, that'd be too much. But yeah, so fantastic film. So James, what, what have you got something for us? I know we always put guests on the spot, but if you have something, it'd be great. Well, I have uh, I have two teenage boys. One is at uh, university studying economics, and one is studying economics um, for A level. And uh, we have uh, waiting in the wings two socialists about to potentially take over the country. Uh, a quick Christmas quiz question for you, but I will give you the answer as well. How many A-levels between them do you think um, that John McDonald and uh, uh, and uh, Jeremy Corbyn have? Oh, wow. They have two. They're both on Jeremy and they're two E's. That is correct. Oh, my God. And he had, to, he had the nerve to call someone a stupid woman the other day. Okay. Just goes to show, doesn't it? But um, my, my recommendation is 
you know, we've got to a world where basically since communism went, we don't have any real time um, examples of just how awful socialism is, except maybe Venezuela, which some academics are still trying to defend to this day. And it means that our kids are being taught that socialism is an acceptable economic model that doesn't do too much harm and maybe even does some good. And, um, and you know, far too many people believe this. So um, I've just been reading a book. Uh, uh, it's about 10 years old by Thomas DiLorenzo, a U.S. economist called How Capitalism Saved America. So you can tell it's got a slightly nationalistic slant. <laughs> but it is a short and wonderful um, uh, a reminder of just how good uh, the effects of capitalism are saves you having to read Stephen Pinker's excellent but very much longer book. Uh, and if you want uh, another version of it, you can go and look at Factfulness by the late great uh, Hans Rosling. But basically, um, this is a great economic primer that just says you do realize that all the good stuff that's happened in the world in the last hundred years has happened because of capitalism. You do realize that capitalism gives you better outcomes than socialism, environmentalism. All these other uh, things that have become fashionable and never are tested in the in the proper empirical laboratories of uh, of truth, um, and it's and, it, and we need to be armed with this stuff because none of our academics are teaching this stuff. Absolutely fascinating. That's uh, it's why I love to do media picks that we get things like that from it. Absolutely fantastic. Thank you, James. So I, I guess your your boys they'll be teaching their teachers a few things with given who their dad is, right? They, they do try, but it, uh, they report back to me faithfully that it results in very low marks. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing they, they loathe is if the students um, use a wider reading list than the one that they've been given, because it means that the teachers then have to read more widely themselves to check whether it's true or not. Wow. And uh, and so, you know, our our, uh, our academic uh, qualities are, are, are on the down, I, I fear. Mm. There's going to be so many people who want to contact you. What's the best way of doing that? Are you on Twitter or email address, or how would you like people to contact you? Well, this is the bad news. Um, we um, offer only um, uh, talks to institutions, mm -hmm. and um, so we only uh, we only have uh, contact channels for institutions. I do occasionally write for Money Week. That is my way of giving back, my pro bono. But uh, unfortunately, I can't do person-to-person um, -person contact. I'm not allowed to by the regulator. You, so you're not I on Twitter? I probably couldn't, wouldn't have the time anyway. But I'm, I'm not allowed to recommend individual stocks or investments. I'm not allowed to talk to individual investors. Um, the regulator um, doesn't allow me in my uh, role to do that. Right. But if we have a listener that does, what, does represent an institution, how, how should they get in touch? Uh, then look us up on uh, on the website and uh, and contact our sales team via the website Macro Strategy Partnership. So it's macrostrategy.co.uk. We'll put that in the show notes. So you you don't ever tweet out at all, do you? I don't. I've I've no. uh, I've, I've I've thought about it, but my my biggest problem is I you know to, to do the research you need to kind of put the blinkers on, put your head down, and get digging. Mm. And uh, distractions, although they're fun, break your train of thought and prevent. The digging being as as profitable as we'd like so it'd be wonderful to be able to be skilled enough um to to, to be able to sort of uh, do tweets and chats at the same time as doing in-depth forensic uh digging but uh, enter tim price <laughs> <laughs> yeah only only the truly greats can do that yeah <laughs> well that's absolutely fantastic james i really enjoyed the podcast the timing of this has just been perfect so thank you so much for your insights i really enjoyed it and just, Tim, as always, and for the whole year, Tim, thank you so much 
for being such a brilliant co-host. I've really enjoyed the podcast these Me- years. Merry, Merry, Merry Crashmas. Merry Crashmas to everybody. And, uh, and a happy and prosperous 2019. Thank you to all Let, our let's listeners. Let's hope everyone gets a little bit of cash in their stocking so they can go bargain hunting in the early new year. What a <laughs> lovely positive thought to end the podcast on and end the year on. Thank you so much, James. Thank you so much, Tim. Thank you to all our listeners. Have a fantastic Merry Christmas, season's greetings, and a prosperous 2019. See you in the new year. Thanks, James. Well, my pleasure. Speak to all the best. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Please do your own research or contact a professional advisor.